Have you ever heard someone called a poser? You've heard me use that term once or twice. What's a poser? Well, a poser is someone who dresses like, acts like, or walks like someone or something that they're not. It's that white guy who dresses with the baggy jeans all the way down to their knees, the bling jewelry on their hands and around their neck, their hat on sideways, acting like they're a rap star. It's that guy or that gal who buys those Wrangler jeans, the cowboy boots, the big belt buckle, the cowboy hat, and maybe even a truck and calls herself a cowgirl. It's that person who tries to impress others to make others think that they're something that they're not. That's what a poser is. It's playing a role that's not yours. And in our verses today, we are going to be told that we are to play a role that is not ours. We are given a script to act out. We are given a title that we cannot fulfill. We are told to be posers. And at the same time, we are told how we are not really posers when we do act out and act in that script and play that role. Because Jesus is playing a role as well. And the Father is playing a role too. We're going to see that they have different, separate roles to play. And we are told this beginning with Jesus, saying for the eighth and final time that he is the I Am. Again, the significance of this statement can't be overstated. When he says, I am, every one of those eight times, he is making a blasphemous claim, if it weren't true. What he is doing is taking the eternal name of God, the immutable nature that was told to Moses in the wilderness, the name that sums up, that describes the very essence of, of the glory of God, describes the essence and the reality of who and what God is, that he is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything, that he is eternal, infinite, immutable, and he is in his power and perfection, goodness and glory, wisdom, justice and truth, and that nothing happens except through him and by his will. I am that I am. When God told that to Moses, he wasn't being unkind in not telling him more, explaining more what that meant. Knowing that God is, I am, being told that he is infinite, immutable, unchangeable, holy, 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 that he is loving and just, that is sufficient reason to worship him. That's enough. But God, in and through his Son, desires us to know him more. To know him personally, more intimately. He, Jesus, desires that his Father receive greater glory through this happening. Which is why he reveals more of what I am means every time he says that name. He tells us that he is the bread of life in John 6, that he is the light of the world in John 8, that he is the door of the sheep in John 10, that he is the good shepherd in John 10, verse 11, that he is the resurrection and the life, John 11, and that he is the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. 
And then he tells us in verse 1 from today that he is the true vine. This is his role. And that his father, he is the vine dresser. That is his role. They are both God, but each one of them has a role to play in redemptive history, bringing glory to the other. Neither works independent of the other, neither works outside or against the other. And then in verse 2, he tells us what our role is. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Jesus being the vine and the Father being the vine dresser has great implications for our life and even our understanding of Scripture. And the reason for this, that we need to understand this, is because Israel has always thought of themselves as the vine of God. And a great illustration of this, they get this from Psalm 80. If you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 80. I want to show you why Israel thinks that they are the vine. Psalm 80, verse 1. It begins this way. Restore us, O God, to the choir master, according to Lily's a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come and save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an, an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So we have to ask ourselves, who is this psalm written to? It's written to God. Did you recognize here that the psalmist used the name of God in verse 4, Yahweh? This is different than when he used the term God in verse 7. In verse 4, he is pleading with the nature, the essence of God. In verse 7, he is using the title of the reality of that essence, that nature. And then beginning in verse 8, he describes the work of the one that is the I am. He says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its roots to the river. As I said, the people of Israel always thought of themselves as the vine of God. But the early church fathers never did. In fact, the modern evangelical understanding of Israel the nation Israel being the vine only gained prominence in the 19th century. The 20th century, with the rise of dispensationalism, cemented the thought that Israel was distinct from the church, while at the same time being on equal footing with the church. And the rise of that Left Behind series helped solidify this thinking 
and the eschatology that is all centered around events that happen in the physical nation of Israel. In short, there are Christians, or at least those that claim to be Christians, who actually teach, hold, believe that there are two salvation plans, one for the nation Israel and one for the church. And if we stop here in our reading of this psalm, it would be easy to hold to this kind of thinking. But if we stopped here, it would be just like thinking that Jesus died for the sins of every person for all time, and that every person for all time has the right, the ability to choose to accept him, all based upon a few select verses taken on their own and out of context, such as John 3.16. But we need to continue on in our reading of Psalm 80 to get a true understanding of what is being said. Let's go. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Verse 15 begins revealing what the vine is, and even why the vine was brought up out of Egypt. For who was this done? It was the son. In verse 16, they have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Where's his hand going to be? On whom is it going to be? It's the son, the man of his right hand, the son of man who, made, who he made strong for himself. Verse 18, Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Yahweh, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Bingo. We have a winner. It's when you see, it's when you understand what Israel is that you can finally begin to understand the word of God because all the word is about Christ, for Christ, and through Christ. He is the Israel of God. He is the true vine. And in verse 1 of chapter 15, Jesus did not say that he was just the vine or even just a vine. He said that he is the true vine. It has never been about the children of that man, Abraham. It has always been about the spiritual children of God that were part of that children of Abraham. Okay, now that we've established who and what the true vine is, we can finally deal with what our role is, as given to us in verse 2. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So we all agree that the branches that Jesus is talking about here are those that claim him as a savior, as him as savior, right? Got that? Since this is true, this sure sounds like that pea in tulip is not so sound. 
you know, the P that stands for perseverance of the saints, the once saved, always saved. But if that's true, then what Jesus said back in chapter 14, verse 16, about the Spirit living inside of us forever, that can't be true. So how do we reconcile these two things? Or do we? Or are we just left to wonder at which one of these positions are true? The problem is not with Scripture or even perseverance of the saints. Our problem arises when we take this verse on its own and then dissect it for meaning, separate it from the rest of the text surrounding it, and then distill from it some theological meaning that were never meant to be there. Let me explain. In verse 1, we hear Christ take the immortal heavenly name of God as his own, and he tells us that he's the true vine. We get that. We understand. We can grasp that he has a different role than the Father. But then we come to verse 2, and we can completely forget about verse 1. We don't think that verse 1 has anything to do with verse 2. We look at verse 2, and since we don't read Greek, we think this verse is about us. It seems to be about us. But in the original language, that word that translated as branch can be just as easily translated as vine. And the word for takes away can be just as easily be rendered as um, cleans or lifts up. The fruit that is being spoken of here is not a requirement for saving faith a requirement to be in the vine. It is a symptom of saving faith. It speaks about producing fruit of the vine. And this verse, like verse 1, isn't about us and about us keeping ourselves. It's about Him. It's about His covenant that He is about to seal with His blood. Verse 1 and 2 are all about God, not us. Not what we do or don't do. Saints, I have to tell you, relax. You didn't save yourself. And for this reason, you cannot lose your salvation. It is God who chose you, who predestined you. It is He who regenerated your heart. It is He who gave you His Son. It is He who gave you His Spirit. And it is He who will hold you fast. He doesn't speak about us until verse 3. Look at verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. In verse 3, he is not speaking. He's not talking about just a single word here, though, but the entirety of what he has told them. And the things that he's already told them are what make them clean. Well, that sounds pretty important, like something that we should make sure that we understand. What is it that made them clean? What are those things that Jesus told them that makes them clean? They are those I am statements that he has made. It is him being the bread of life, the door, the way, the truth, and the life. And it is him being the true vine. It is him being the only way to the Father. And that since he has gone and prepared a place for us, that he will return in order that we may be with him. 
It is him asking his father to send the spirit of truth who will teach us and remind us of all that Christ has said. Simply put, Jesus is the word that makes us clean. And the work of his word that he is, is to make his father known, which is told to us in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. And this is why knowing Jesus, knowing God, has to be the task of our life. This has to be our mission statement, the banner that flies above our life to know God and make him known. The reason for this having to be our mission statement and goal of our lives is found in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You can replace that word abide in these sentences with the words remain or dwell, or stay, and even continue to live in. And when you do, you get a more full understanding of what Jesus meant when he said, abide in me. In the first part of this verse, we catch a glimpse of the reality of our salvation, though. Not only are we to remain in him, to stay in him, to dwell in him, to continue to live with him, but he does these things with us. This is how and even why of the abiding in him. Because you're right, you cannot abide in him. You cannot obey him. You cannot hate sin and love righteousness. You can try doing these things on your own and you may have some measure of success, but you will only be cleaning up the outside of the tomb and not addressing the real dead that is on the inside. The Mormons are great examples of this truth. They do a great job from abstaining from street drugs, from abstaining from being drunkards. They do a great job of going on missions, having large families, attending services, and even creating community. And they do it all outside of him abiding in them and having, and I'm sorry, outside of them abiding in him and having him abide in them. And they are the most medicated group of people in the world. They have twice the national rate of prescribed antidepressants of anybody. And that area where Mormonism is the strongest, where it is the most integrated in the United States, that is called the suicide belt, claiming over twice the national average of other states. This is the product of trying to do this on your own. The reality is we cannot do this of ourselves. We can't be holy. We can't desire God. We can't have peace with God. And we can't be set free from our sins. None of this can happen outside of us abiding in Christ. But more importantly, He must abide in us. He must be the true vine that we grow from and receive life from to be able to abide in him. And we can't abide in him without him first abiding in us. 
Consider Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We didn't make ourselves the first time or the second time. We were created in the image of God. And if we are regenerate, we were recreated in Christ Jesus. And he even tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. And that he's made those as well. And then he tells us that the good works that we do, that we are created for, that they were prepared for us to do, to walk in, to perform, before we were ever even created. And you still think that you can't obey? Well, here's the rest of verse 4 from our text today. He says, As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Think about a branch on a, a grapevine. Where does it draw the ability to grow from? Where does it get the DNA to grow as a grapevine? Where does it get the DNA to produce grape leaves and even grapes? And what happens when a branch is cut from the vine? Can it live on its own? Does it continue to grow? But what happens to every branch on the grapevine? What do they do? It grows. They grow just like the vine directs them to. It produces grape leaves as it's directed to, in accordance to the vine. It produces grapes as it's been directed by the vine. Do you see? There are clear instructions in the Bible, commands given that you cannot do. Commands such as Colossians 3, 5, put to death, therefore, the components of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Commands such as the ones given by Christ to us in John 14, verse 15, which says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. We hear these verses, we read these verses, and we know in our heart we can't do them. They are impossible. In fact, we don't even desire to do them. We don't even have that ability. We don't have the ability to obey the commands of God. The fact is, we actually love the components of our earthly nature, the sexual immorality, the impurity, the evil desires, the greed. We love secular music, movies, entertainment, being made much of, having people gawk at us, adore us. We love these things. So what's the answer? Do we just continue on living according to the flesh? Well, According to Romans 8.13, 8, if we do, if we do live according to the flesh, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Did you hear the answer there? Did you catch how this is given to us? Do you understand what it means in abiding in Christ? We must live by the Spirit. 
And the reality is that if we have the Spirit living inside of us, as was promised by Jesus in verse 17 of John 14, then we can be doing these things. But how do we do them? Because even Paul acknowledged that though he was saved, had the Spirit living inside of him, that he continued to sin. Romans 7, beginning in verse 14, when he said, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I admit that the law is good. How many of us sitting here can completely understand what Paul is saying here? We hate what we love. And then after doing those things which please our flesh, we are mournful over them. All the while, we go right back to doing it again. And there are some people, though, that take these verses and the ones that are following and use them as an excuse to live carnally, thinking that, they are, that these verses are an out, a loophole in killing our flesh. Listen to verses 17 through 24 of Romans 7. Paul says, in that case, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in, it, in me that does it. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out, for I do not do the good that I want to do. Instead, I keep on doing the evil I don't want to do. And if I do what I do not want, then it is no longer I who does it, but it's the sin living in me that does it. So this is the principle that I've discovered. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in, in God's law. But I see another law at work in my body, warring against the law of my mind and holding me captive to the law of sin that dwells within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? This is what Flip Wilson used to say for you guys that are my age. The devil made me do it. What are you going to do? I'm just being me. I'm just expressing myself. We all have to let off steam once in a while. You can't blame me. It's the sin that lives inside of me. But what Paul just said here is the reality of every saint that has ever lived. This is the duality of our nature. We are not perfect this side of heaven, and we will never be perfect this side of heaven. But we are perfectly saved by a perfect Savior, a perfect Spirit, and a perfect Father. And Paul did not abide in his duality. He didn't use his old nature as an excuse to continue living on in sin. He did not abide in his old self because he knew the one who abided in him and who he abided in. And for this reason, he could praise that one. In verse 25 of chapter 7, he said, Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Again, you can't stop here and use that verse as a standalone. Because if you do, and when you do, you will be, end up proving 
that you are not abiding in the vine and that the vine is not abiding in you because there is a duality within us. We are saints entombed in these bodies of corruption. This is nothing new. This is not a surprise to Jesus. It wasn't a head slap for him to figure this out. And it was to saints just like us, these men who were also entombed in bodies of corruption, men whose flesh warred with their souls. It was to these men that he, Jesus, told them that they must abide in him, that they must obey his commands. So how is this done? How do we fulfill the role that God has given us? If in fact he has given us a role to play in the theater of God. Before I allow Paul to answer that question for us, I want to make sure that you never allow anyone ever to tell you that chapter 7 of Romans was written to describe the life of a person prior to salvation. That Paul was talking about his life prior to being knocked off his high horse and blinded by Jesus. Because Romans 7 is the life of every wretched sinner that has ever been saved by a glorious God. And you guys all can testify to that. Paul was speaking about the reality of the life of the redeemed. Now, let's hear how. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life sets you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. He thus condemned sin in the flesh so that the righteous standard of the law might be fulfilled in us who don't walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here is the abiding. Here is the answer as to how we can abide, how we can kill the sin within us. It's Christ. We walk according to the Spirit of Christ who dwells within us. And as emphasis of this truth, Paul then interjects a comparison between the redeemed and the not redeemed. Beginning in verse 5 of Romans 8, he says, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, say they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind of the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law nor can it do so. Those controlled by the flesh cannot please God. Are you redeemed? Have you been given the Spirit of God living inside of you? Do you know that Jesus is Lord? If so, then Paul is going to talk directly to you. Beginning in verse 9, he says, You, however are controlled not by the flesh, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin. 
yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. This is the reality of life in Christ. And this is why we must make knowing Christ the goal of our lives. He has redeemed us. He has justified us. He has cleansed us from our sin. He made peace with his Father for us. And he's given us his Spirit who lives inside of us. And we need to make knowing him our priority. And when we do that, it is then that we are abiding in him. It is then that we will be fulfilling the role that we have been given in redemptive history, in the eternal heavenly theater of God. This is exactly what Jesus meant in verse 5 of chapter 15 when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Saints, do you not see you cannot kill sin on your own. You will never even desire to. But he is abiding in you. This isn't a maybe if you're saved. This isn't a nice thought that has no meaning. This is not the reality only for those that are radically saved. Whatever that is. He abides in you. And for this reason, you have the ability to abide in him. He is the vine. You are the branches. You don't keep yourself attached to the vine, do you? This is where those who don't understand and don't, who, are, who don't know the sovereignty of God, where they get confused and why they are so sure that they can lose their salvation because they chose God. They attached themselves to the vine. They grabbed some scotch tape and ran up to that vine and wrapped themselves around it and taped themselves to it. And since they chose to be saved, since they attached themselves to that vine, they rightly understand that the only thing that is holding them onto the vine is themselves. They had better be producing some fruit. Otherwise, they're going to fall off. But this is not the reality of the redeemed. Saints, precious people, you didn't save yourself. You are not the master of your destiny. God is. If you are redeemed, if you are a saint, then you were predestined to be one long before your first thought. If you are of the elect, you were chosen from eternity past. And if you are of Christ, then you have been given a new heart and a new soul by God. And that has allowed you to recognize your sin and the holiness of God. You can't lose your salvation since it's not yours to lose. And as proof of this, listen to you. Listen to you and all those that have been given the same role to play in the theater of God. When you and they stand around that glorious throne of God in heaven, hear yourself, because this is a sneak peek of what is to come. Revelation 7.10, And crying with a loud voice, we say, 
Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the, on the throne and to the Lamb. This is us in heaven. Or we, go, we can go back in time to Psalm 3.8, where it says, Salvation belongs to you, Yahweh. Your blessings be on your people. Or Psalm 62, verses 1 and 2. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Yes, you are saved, and you can, you can claim salvation for yourself, but it's not yours. At least it's not from you. It was a gift given you, one that you cannot return, one that you cannot lose, one that you cannot tarnish, and one that you cannot hinder. But then what are we to make of verse 6 from our text today? It says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Again, don't take this, um, this verse out of context. Because context is king, because Jesus is king. Who was Jesus talking to at this moment? That one that was not of him, Judas. That one that would not abide in him. He has already been sent away. All that remained in that upper room would abide in him. Not perfectly, not sinlessly, but they would all abide in him. They would all make it home to the place where Jesus was going to. The place that he would return from to gather them to be with him. This section of scripture, all this comes from what is called the farewell discourse. Jesus comforting these men who would have their entire lives rock soon because the ruler of this world was coming and would seemingly win as he, Jesus, allows himself to be taken, allows himself to be tortured, allows himself to be crucified. And then after he allows all this to happen, he will then allow himself, who knew no sin, to become sin in order that these men and us can become the righteousness of God. When he, the true vine, has the full force of the wrath of his loving father hurled at him with extreme prejudice to purchase us from sin, from death, from our old master, how do we abide in the vine? Are we holding ourselves onto it? Are we the ones that are feeding the vine? Are we the ones that are telling the vine what to do? Or are we part of the vine because the vine desires us to be part of him? Verse 6 is not speaking of the redeemed. It is speaking of those outside of the redeemed, those that he has not revealed himself to. And saints, don't be fooled. Because there are those that claim Christ, that claim to be of Christ, who are not. They are the ones who don't desire to know Christ. They are the ones that do not make Christ the goal in life, the banner flying over their life. They are the ones that lead those so-called churches that play at Christianity, the ones that feed your flesh with shows and bounce houses and cotton candy sermonettes. But do you desire, do you desire 
Seeking Christ should be the banner over your life. If so, then he speaks of you next. We're told in verses 7 through 9, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 7 starts with a troubling word, though. If. If is a word that means that it's not certain. But Jesus has used that word if before. He did that beginning in chapter 14. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me as well. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and welcome you into my presence so that you also may be where I am. You know the way to where I'm going. Did he go? Will he not come back? Those ifs are conditional clauses that set up reality. They really can be replaced with, with the word since. Since it is so. Since I am going away. And since you abide in me and my word abides in you. Ask whatever you wish. This verse is where Augustine came up with that famous quote. Love God and do what you want. But we have to make sure that we do the first thing first and then do the second thing after that. When we are abiding in Christ, you're going to find that your prayers aren't like those that are not truly abiding in him. They will be less demanding, less name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. They will not be demanding that God do, heal, or give. They will be they will become more about him having his way in our lives. They will be more about us are expressing our desires and then acknowledging that we understand that we aren't God and that our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And for this reason, the final words of our prayers will be, Lord, your will be done. And when we pray like that, we can rest assured that our prayers will be answered and that everything that we ask will come to pass. The command in verse 9, though, sounds familiar. It's almost like that of verse 4 where he told us that to re abide, to remain in him. But here he tells us to abide and remain, not in him, but in his love. So what love is he talking about? the love that flowed from the Father to him, and then from him to us. Once again, we are told of the importance of knowing Jesus, the one that is the way to the Father, the one that loved the Father and proved it to the world by obeying his commands, doing all that he commanded, the one that has given us his peace. Not like the world gives, a peace that the world can never give, it is peace with his Father, who is the originator of the love that Christ has for us and has given to us. So how do we fulfill the role that we've been given in the theater of God? 
How are we able to do this? We are told how in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We humans are a strange lot. We take eternal things and we turn them carnal. For example, the concept of love. Can you describe it? What's love? When you're asked this question, we think emotions, feelings. We remember the puppy love of our youth. We remember the moment our children were born. We remember the moment that we met our first spouse, or we met our first spouse. Ha, we met our spouse. (laughs) Sorry. We think of long walks on warm, soft sands along calm beaches. We think about gifts given to us by our parents or our friends or our loved ones. This isn't love. Love is not some mystical experience. Love is an active response of obedience. That's love. An active response of obedience. Jesus said the same thing earlier in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. If knowing Christ is to be the banner over your life, then these two are the pillars of the Christian life and experience that hold up that banner. Love, obedience. But do we know these pillars as our life? Would we say that the love for God and obedience to him are the pillars of our life? Would these be the two things that people will put on your tombstone? The two things that describe you the best. But we need to be really careful never to reverse these orders of these pillars and try to be obedient in order to be loved because that's a works-based theology and will always fail. Obedience springs from love. It's a response to love. We love because he loved us first. Romans 5.8. And saints, we can never earn his love. We can never deserve his love. Have him love us more because of our obedience. That's Romans 8.38-39. Did you hear what I just said though? God will never love you more because you're obedient to him he loved you with a perfect love an infinite an unchanging love before the foundation of the love of the world his love never grows colder or hotter for you especially because of your actions this is because his love for you is grounded in it is founded in himself that's 1 John 4:10. And since this is true, then why does God, why does Christ keep telling us that if we love him and we'll keep his commandments? And really, what reason if this is true, why should we obey him? Well, both answers are found in what true obedience is. Just as love is not an abstract feeling, but is described by the person and work of Christ, so also is obedience. Our obedience to God, 
Our ability to be obedient flows from and through God, not us. Our obedience is not rooted in, nor does it spring from the natural law. It is rooted in God and flows from God, which is why we are told in 1 Peter 1.16, You shall be holy, for I am holy. This isn't a command to do, but a statement of fact. It's a condition of being. It is our condition found in Christ. And outside of God, we can't play the role that we have been granted the privilege of playing in the theater of God. We can only play it, fulfill it, because we have God living inside of us. But since we have him living inside of us, and since he is around us, we can fulfill the law of God, the role that he, that he has given us to play. It is through Christ and the Holy Spirit indwelling us that we can fulfill the good works that he has prepared for us, those that we are told of of Romans 6, 18 and 19, which says, and having been set free from sin, have, you guys have become righteous slaves. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as, you, as once you presented your bodies or your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now prevent, present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Our obedience to the Lord is an expression of who we know him to be. Who he really is. King, Lord, Savior, and Father. And our obedience to the Lord, our abiding in him, is an expression of who we know ourselves to be. Slaves, disciples, friends, brothers, and children. Why should we obey? Why should we obey if he never loves us more or less? What difference does it make? Well, he tells us in verse 11 from today's section of scripture. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is the end of another thought by Christ. Here in this vinyl verse is the reason behind all that he told us in this section. He has given us joy. And he has given us his joy, that our joy may be full. He's given us his peace, and he's given us his joy. But is his peace a reality in your life? Is his joy a reality in your life? Is his joy full in your life? If not, if these are not the reality of your life, there's one reason for this. You aren't abiding in the love of Christ. You aren't abiding in him. Not that he has failed you, because he has given you his peace. He has given you his joy. And if you are of him, you have not, you are not, you have not pulled yourself from the vine. Nor do you have to worry that he's over there grabbing those pruning shears going, this one's out of here. That he's going to cut you from the vine. Because that vine loves you. He laid his life down for you. He purchased you at a great cost. 
and he will never leave you or forsake you. He'll hold you fast. But are you abiding in him? Do you know him? Are you desiring to make him the center of your world? Have you centered your attention on getting to know the one that is giving you his peace, his joy? This is then why you don't know them. And you sit there and you go, I don't understand. How can these things be? Well, let me illustrate real fast. You're married. Most of you guys are in here. You have a ring on your finger. You have a certificate proving that you're married. But if you don't place your affection towards your spouse, if you don't make your spouse the exclusive desire in your life, you will not know the benefits of being married, the joy of marriage. You will be married in name only. You may recognize your spouse. You may spend some time with them once in a while, but they're not your joy. They're not your best friend. The sad fact is that this is the reality of the marriages of the world. And the truth is, is that not only is this the reality of why marriages have fallen on such hard times, but also why the church is relegated to non-essential. We have not abided in the love of Christ. We have not abided in Christ. But we've been given the ability to. We have the heart to but we haven't turned our focus on the one that has given us the ability to, the heart to love him. Don't believe that this is a possibility, that he has given you the ability to help to love him like this? And answer these questions. Do you love him? Do you love Christ at all? Have you been given the heart to recognize that you're in, a sinner in need of a savior? Have you been given the heart to see the precious lamb of God for who he is? If you say yes, then you have been given the heart to do this. And you didn't do this. And it's his desire that you know his peace, that you know his joy. And he's not kind of just giving you these things. He has not given you the heart to know him and not given you the heart to know his peace or joy. The sad truth is that we've never been taught. We've never been shown. We've never been discipled to do this. Just as being a good husband, a good wife must be taught, shown, and demonstrated. The same is true for being a good slave, a good son, a good brother, a good child of God. And you have never been shown how to do this. You have been shown how to be a really good consumer, a really good churchgoer, a good program attender. And because of this, you and I have been gypped. We have been relegated to just the life part of the abundant life that we have been given in Christ. bit skeptical about this? Do you think I'm painting with this too broad of a brush? Then why is the concept of serving this body, actively serving here, so foreign to us? Why 
Do you find it strange when you're told that you are to esteem these of your covenant body more than your own blood relatives? Why do you flinch when you're told that you should be discipled and that you should be discipling? Because these are the clear commands of God for his church, for his children. And we've never been taught them, shown them, expected that they be our life in Christ. And for this reason, we have never fully, never really experienced the abundant life that we've been given in Christ. We don't know his joy any more than we know his peace, even though they're ours. So what's the answer? What are we to do? Should we now just jettison all the church growth models, the programs, the smoke machines, the interpretive dancing? Yeah, we should, yeah, we should jettison those things. But we will never be able to attain to his peace or his joy by our works. So what are we to do? Just give up, go home, turn on the TV, turn on the Game Boy, crack open a couple of cold ones and just continue living in our less than abundant life? No. We need to abide in his love. Do you really believe that he saved you? Do you really believe that he rose from the grave? Do you really believe that he's washed you whiter than snow? Then we need to abide in him. We must cling to this truth. This is what abiding is. It is focusing in on him with the laser beam focus. It is playing the role in the theater of God that he has given us the privilege to play. We're told in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen to that verse as given to us in the New Living Translation. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. We have the ability to abide in him. You have the ability to obey him. You have that ability. So do I. And what you must do is be a put on. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Yes, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He has, he has robed you in righteousness already. He has washed you whiter than snow. He has given you his spirit and he has given you himself. The first part of that verse has already been done by him. He has put himself on you, in you. Now you do the second part by focusing in on the first part. And let us do that knowing that we can. Knowing that we can abide in him. That we can know his peace. Know his joy. Because for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We can do this. 
fall in love with your Savior. This is how we abide in Him. Spend time with Him. Adore Him. He's worthy to be praised. To be adored. And we can do this. Let's pray.